Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol's a nationally known gerontologist, a chairman of the board for the National Council on Aging, and is also the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Delighted to be doing this show now for several years, aimed at helping caregivers and their families. And that's a large task. Well, it is, and there are so few resources for caregivers um, and we hope that m- caregivers will find us. And, you know, and w- I was just looking at the latest stats of caregivers in America that came out from the National Association of State Units on Aging as well as the National Caregiver Alliance. So we can talk about those in just a minute. Uh, you read my cue. That's good. You're reading body language. That's cool. I gave her a look and you responded. I want to just tell folks that coming up is Dr. Rebecca Timlin Scalera, uh, who is our very special guest. She founded the Cancer Couch Foundation. A young woman diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer, a death sentence in most cases. Uh, and she tells the story of how she faced that and how she's dealing with it today. And she, uh, she'll be a very interesting guest. Now back to the stats. Well, you know, just like, you know, her husband, um, you know, that she talks about on her website. So Profile of Caregivers in America uh, that just came out. And it talks that, you know, 82% of caregivers are only caring for one adult. But 15% are caring for two. And 3% are caring for three or more adults. I mean, caring for three or more adults or more. That sounds like abundant again. Yeah. Um, that's a lot. The interesting set, 49% felt that they had no choice in taking on this role. Wow. So, you know, when we, we fast forward to the stressors of caregiving and how people feel about caregiving, if they believe they didn't have a choice getting into it, you can imagine when things get rough, why this creates so much stress and friction. You know, and of these caregivers, they're providing 17 billion with a B-boy billion hours of unpaid care. That's phenomenal. Well, you know, let's put that into comparison. So that that care is worth about $470 billion. The entire Medicaid budget of the United States is only $449 billion. Wow. So unpaid caregivers, $470 billion. So you take all the Medicaid services in the United States. Family members are providing 90% of the care in this country. They, they are donating more than any state, any government is providing in caring, especially for older persons. And losing, in many cases, a lot of income. Well, they are. The, in the stats, uh, what are the stressors? How about $303,000, $303,000, $304,000 in lost income in benefits on average over the lifetime of a caregiver 50-plus 55% feeling overwhelmed, 20% physical strain, 2.5 times, family caregivers are 2.5 times more likely to live in poverty than non-caregivers wow. and similar age groups. It's pretty scary. It is. It's very scary. And, you know, and these are 60% are female uh, 34% of that age, 50 to 64. But, you know, almost, let's see, it looks like 47%, almost half are age 18 to 50. 
So this, you know, these are young adults, adults all the way up to, you know, the boomer population. But then you get to the 75 plus and you've got one in 10 caregivers are 75 and older. And these are people that are probably caring for someone in their 90s or in their hundreds. And the 75 plus probably could use a caregiver themselves. Well, in many cases they could, you know, and and, and most of these, almost 80 percent are doing medical nursing tasks like um, administering IVs, medications, um, you know, managing all their medications, and they're spending 24.4 hours on average per week. And yet we have no national policy on caregiving. We have no long-term policy for caregiving. We have no funding source for caregiving except for that Medicaid after you're already spent down into poverty. So it's all private pay or all public pay. And in between are these family caregivers doing 90% of everything. Now, for folks who want to read more about those stats, where do they find them? Um, You can go to the National Alliance for Caregiving or you can go to the National Association of States United for Aging and Disability. So nashwood.gov or nac.org. NAC.org. N-A-C. NAC. Cool. So talk to me a little bit about early palliative care. We've talked from time to time about palliative care and how it may benefit caregivers as well as the care recipient. Well, first of all, let's talk about what palliative care is. It is not hospice. There is no terminal diagnosis, but what you have is someone who's not going to get any better. So this could be someone with, um, you know, lung problems, with chronic heart disease, with, you know, very uh, aggressive diabetes. They're not going to get any better. They've already got neuropathy. They've already got problems. But they haven't been given six months to live. But they haven't been given six months to live. You know, they're probably going to live years. And what they're finding is palliative care is working with that patient that's that's not going to be getting, they're not going to be cured. Um, to decide what kind of life do they want to have? What are the important things? Do you want to have energy for your kids, your grandkids' birthday party? Um, Do you want to be able to still participate in line dancing? Um, You know, what is it that's important to you? So according to the recent studies, um, they are looking at this palliative care, and that's usually where a physician can come into the home and map out exactly what this person wants, what's important. But they're finding it benefits the caregivers. Um, let's take an example like cancer. Our guest today had cancer. And in particular, if the researchers noted that even though they don't require the family caregivers to be present when they're talking about palliative care, about half the time they are, and they find that the family caregiver is less depressed depressed because they did a study showing depression in caregivers. It, you know, it's it can be very trying, very difficult. And there's less depression when the family member knows that their loved one has a better quality of life and that the person that they're caring for, even if they're not that crazy about them, has a better yeah. quality of life um, and they have fewer depression symptoms. So, you know, this idea, and, and, I, and I'm sure it goes back to feeling like you know, caregivers feel like there's a loss of control. And if they feel like the person they're caring for has made choices, and maybe they've given some things up because they've decided what's important, that gives the caregiver permission not to do everything. You know, and I think that kind of a discussion, maybe we need to think more about that. Um, and you don't have to be perfect. Yeah, you don't have to be perfect. And then, you know, this, mm. this is showing that this was like a side benefit. They're not doing anything for the family caregiver. They're just helping the person that has the disease. It's collateral so, benefit. So, yeah, it's, it's collateral benefit. But what if we actually targeted the caregiver to 
in that palliative care intervention? How much better could we get both of them? Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking about uh, lots of issues as we open this program. And we have a special guest coming up in a moment, Dr. Rebecca Timlin-Scalera, telling her story about founding the Cancer Couch Foundation, a neuropsychologist who was just slammed with, out of the blue, the diagnosis of stage four metastatic cancer. She'll be our guest in just a couple of moments. And as we shift from palliative care and the benefits, perhaps, uh, to caregivers, uh, there's been a lot in the news of late about abuse of op- opioids uh, and pain management. Well, and, and why are we talking about that on Caregiver SOS again? Um, and it's because so many times what they're finding is this opioid addiction, which is now rampant in the older generation. We at WellMed are identifying patients who are addicted to painkillers. So, you know, we're talking about Percocet, uh, um, Oxycontin, Oxycontin uh, things that someone goes to an emergency room and they're in tremendous pain. And the first thing they get is a painkiller. They're sent home with a prescription for painkillers and their opioids. And the next thing you know, the people are addicted to them because and they're running it around take long. because it doesn't take long and it feels so good. And it, you know, all those little neurotransmitters in your brain are like really happy. Uh, there's a reason that, you know, people abuse drugs because they <laughs> feel better <laughs> when they're in this other reality. So, you know, there's this huge push and this particular hospital um, in New Jersey. Uh, an emergency department was really looking at changing their whole philosophy of using opioids and what they're doing it's alternatives like laughing gas like trigger point injections where you're really hitting the spot uh, that's causing all the pain they've even used a harpist uh, going down the halls with soothing music and they're looking at um, you know acupuncture for pain management. So they're trying these different methods. And what they're finding is that in 75% of the patients uh, in, in, at, the, at the hospital, it's actually working. So only 25% really need some sort of opioid pain killer. But they've noticed a lot of harps are being stolen. <laughs> well, this is this is um, St. Joseph's Hospital in New Jersey. I can't speak to the stolen harps. I do right. remember a Stradivarius that got stolen once. <laughs> um, so the Percocet and the Vicodins, uh, intravenous morphine, you know, those things that, you know, they were talking to a, a, a gentleman who worked in healthcare who had become an addict. Um, the opioid, opioids were too expensive, so, of course, he was being treated for heroin, and so many people, because heroin's cheaper, go figure that right. drugs on the street are less expensive than your basic prescription drugs your doctor's giving you. Um, and he was saying he was so happy they didn't use the opioids, number one, because he's addicted to heroin and he doesn't need any more of these things. Exactly. And number two, it didn't give him the foggy, heavy feeling, you know, he was able to be treated without having those highs, those lows, everything that goes with the opioid painkillers. I know myself, the one time that um, I had, uh, it was actually a tooth, you know, a bad tooth uh, that somebody gave me some Percocet. I was running into the walls. I mean, I just took one and that was it. I like, uh, they're still sitting. No more. They're still sitting in my bathroom cabinet because I couldn't even negotiate the hallway <laughs> after one. Uh, so it, you know, it depends. But you know, there are, are times when a painkiller is absolutely necessary, but they're saying, hey, you know, laughing gas is called laughing gas for a reason. It's short term, uh, it can get you over the hump. 
there's uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know about pain management, but what we do know is that these drugs that we're using are too addictive. They are too easy to get. We're prescribing them too often. And it's nice to see because we as caregivers certainly don't want ourselves to become addicted to painkillers, but if we stress our back from lifting our loved one, we don't want our loved one to become addicted. And now you've got even more issues to deal with. So advice to caregivers, if uh, your care recipient or you yourself are being prescribed an opioid. Ask for an alternative. Ask for an alternative. That's just like asking, you know, is this antibiotic going to do anything for me? Or I've had doctors say, oh, no, I just thought you'd want one. I'm not talking about my well-met doctors. This is in my younger days. Um, you know, I just thought you'd want one. I'm like, no, not if it doesn't do anything. So, yeah, the, it's going to help with the pain. But is there something else that also might help with the pain that's not addictive? That's a very good question. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk about a diagnosis of stage four cancer and what that can mean to the patient, and it is devastating. Dr. Rebecca Timlin-Sclera joins us next on Caregiver SOS on Air at 930 AM, The Answer. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on Air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. We're so pleased you're sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we had promised you, and now we are delivering. Dr. Rebecca Timlin-Sclera is joining us. She is the founder and developer of the Cancer Couch Foundation by training a neuropsychologist, and we're delighted to have her with us. She completed her Ph.D. in counseling psychology at Fordham University in New York City, as well as a professional diploma in school psychology. She is an expert on dealing with the kinds of issues that we talk about here on Caregiver SOS On Air, including experiences with a diagnosis of breast cancer. And Dr. Uh, Timlin Sclera, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we are pleased to spend time talking about uh, not only your experience, but it's a, uh, an experience with a diagnosis with breast cancer that, that has a fairly happy ending, right? Well, hopefully, yes. I mean, I guess, you know, they say with, with any kind of cancer, you're as good as your next scan. So, you know, um, that's kind of um, how it goes as you get through, hopefully, the initial treatments, and then you, you cross your fingers and, and hope that it doesn't come back. And so that's kind of where I am right now. I just got through a, a year of chemo and radiation and some surgeries and, and hoping for the best, but um, I had um, an interesting twist at the beginning of my diagnosis. I was actually diagnosed at stage four and um, was left to kind of sit with that diagnosis for about a month before it was um, revised to stage 3C. And it was during that time that I got really a crash course 
in the huge difference between being diagnosed at stage four and being diagnosed at an earlier stage, one through three, with breast cancer. Okay, so and, so let's mm-hmm. back up for just a second and talk mm-hmm. about talk a little bit about because I I know that you know you had a lifestyle um, that certainly didn't suggest that you would be diagnosed with breast cancer. So talk a little bit about why this was such a big surprise. Absolutely, and that's a great, great point because I have absolutely no family history, um, no genetic component, and I am fit. I've been a lifelong athlete. I was actually a Division One college athlete, soccer player, and um, continued, you know, to eat healthy and exercise throughout my adult life. Um, I have two kids. I'm relatively young-ish, I guess, depending on where you stand. I'm 43, and... Um, and I also, that's young, just for uh, the record. That's young, young. Right. Well, we Let's were go both young on that one. Yeah, that's young. That's young. <laughs> um, I'm old enough to think that's young, actually, so that's good. Um, and, you know, I also, because I lost a very dear friend um, to breast cancer six years ago, I actually do self-exams every day, which is over the top, you know, probably any doctor would say you don't need to do it that much, but I just did it every day because um, mine was not detected by mammogram or ultrasound, so I found it myself. And I found it really the moment it was detectable by touch because I, because I did it every day. Um, now, I'm not recommending that anybody needs to do that. I'm just saying that that's, this is how, you know, how much of a poster child for self-awareness of breast cancer I could have been. So to be diagnosed at all and then to be diagnosed with such an advanced case was really, really shocking um, because even at best, if I'm not stage 4, I'm stage 3C, which is really as advanced as you can get. Um, without it metastasizing to stage four. And you mentioned that in your own case with dense breasts, it was even more important uh, that you understood self-exam. Absolutely, because two-thirds of premenopausal women, which is quite a lot, two-thirds is, you know, a a big percentage, um, two-thirds of premenopausal women have dense breasts. And I believe after menopause, I think it's one-third. But if, it's very difficult to detect breast cancer in a mammogram with, in women with uh, dense breasts. Why? It's, they're about 48% effective because it sort of looks like snow. When, you're, when the radiologist is trying to read it, the cancer looks um, it's like white and grainy, and it kind of looks like the rest of the density of the breast. So it's very difficult to pick up. So many states have adopted um, a law that Connecticut has, thanks to a woman named Dr. Nancy Capella, um, and she started a foundation called Are You Dense? And this requires that the um, the state covers ultrasounds when women get mammograms if you have dense breasts, and that the women are notified that they have dense breasts. So, so you you know you've had this healthy lifestyle. No one in your family has had any background in cancer. You mm-hmm. get a diagnosis of stage four, and at that point, you are just devastated. I mean, this is you know devastated. something that shouldn't yeah. have been possible. And, right. and what was it you found out? So, you know, stage four, it pretty, um, you know, all of us are thinking, I think you mentioned in the article, pink ribbons, uh, breast cancer is curable. We've come a long way. We, right. If we find it, we're going to fix it. But, you know, what was the difference from stage four when you found out, you know, the pink ribbons weren't coming to stage three when you found out, oh, my gosh, there's this gap depending on the diagnosis in what's offered. Right, and you never hear about it. And so my first question was, what is, how long do I have? What does this mean? I had a 7-year-old little boy, 10-year-old little girl, um, and that's all, you know, once you're a mother, that's all you think of as your life in terms of your 
kids, you know, how old will they be when I die? I mean, you know, three years, that gets him to 10. I mean, it's just, it was mind-blowing. And um, so that's what I was told. The average is three years. That's the average prognosis. Um, and, you know, my doctor said, but you can beat the odds. You can, and I said, okay. give me, what, 10 years? That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a long life. I'm looking for grandchildren. I'm, you know, so I just went crazy. I really was, like, you know, just on, on the Internet, connecting with anybody I could, trying to learn more about this. You know, how could this be? And what I, what I uncovered is that there's this whole, whole group of women and, and men, too, um, in, in the metastatic community who are raising their voices and raising awareness that, hey, we're here, too, and we are totally cut out of this narrative. We are not, we don't feel included in the, you know, the pink ribbon and the thriving and the, all this, you know, um, which, is, which is wonderful. And I don't mean to, um, there's nothing negative about that, the, the pink um, Pink Ribbon campaigns and prevention and awareness have all done wonderful things in terms of people catching this sooner and in terms of people like me even having the awareness to do breast exams. It's wonderful and the importance of mammograms. However, at this point, everybody's aware and more of that money, funding, and resources needs to start shifting into how do we treat metastatic because these people right now are pretty much just left to die. There are some treatments, but the average prognosis has not changed dramatically in decades. Well, that's what, you know, in the information that you sent to us really surprised me because we hear about how much better um, the cancer treatments are. We're making this huge inroads in the various kinds of cancer. And then to find out that the stage four metastatic cancer for breast cancer hasn't improved in decades, that really was a surprise to me. Right, right. And not only that, but these the people who are living with um, stage four metastatic breast cancer, they feel very, like I said, very left out of the narrative because many organizations, they just don't really know how to represent them, how to deal with this. And, um, and because the prognosis is so poor and there's been very little money, relatively speaking, considering all that's been put into breast cancer, um, the percentage that's been put into looking specifically at treatments for metastatic, it, it's way underfunded. So, um, so tell us, medis- yes. mm-hmm. now I was going to say, uh, because we don't have a ton of time, I was curious, uh, you're downgraded in terms of a diagnosis, upgraded to a much better level to stage 3C. How did they get it wrong? How did they fix it? And how does that lead to the Cancer Couch Foundation? Okay, so they, I had a number of complications. I was in the hospital for quite a long time in the beginning. During that time, I had some bone scans, and they saw lesions in my bones. And that's why they said, okay, it's, it's in your bones, it's stage 4, it's in your hips. When we did a biopsy... Uh, that tissue miraculously came back normal. Nobody knows why, nobody knows what it really is, but it came back normal and we went with it. And my oncologist, when I went to meet him, shook shook my hand across the desk and he said, okay, now we have a chance to go for a cure. Hold that thought. Uh, If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel and we're talking with Dr. Rebecca Timlin-Sclera about her journey, which at the moment looks a lot brighter than it did at one point. So the doctor comes back with a uh, change diagnosis, shakes your hand and says, now we have a chance. And, and you were thinking all along, well, we should have fought it at stage four also. 
Right. What the heck were we going for before if we weren't going for a cure? And that's really when everything changed for me. And I said, I've got to do something about this. And I started this foundation. I started writing about my experience going from being a doctor to a patient within a matter of days. And, you know, being a psychologist, working with people and with health issues and trauma throughout my career, I thought maybe I would have a unique perspective on this. And um, so I started writing about it in kind of a funny way. Um, on the Cancer Couch blog and got thousands of people started paying attention and wanting to read more and I thought, well, I've got to do something with this momentum and I decided to turn it into a foundation that exclusively funds treatment for for metastatic breast cancer. And the idea was to raise money that's not being raised now? That's right. That some a lot of these researchers um, to get federal funding and this you know these bigger grants you have to prove success. There's a big track record. So the best way to get momentum in this is for private foundations like myself to really focus on these young scientists. And I found two of the best in the world. This is all they do. And I, I was looking for the leading resources, and I found them. And and I'm funding um, two different projects, two different institutions. And 100% of the donations go straight to these institutions. My right. husband and I are privately funding this. All right, stick with me just a minute. We're going to talk a bit about how your husband dealt with all of this, how your kids yeah. are certainly old enough to understand that mommy was having some difficulties. So stick right. with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Carol Zerniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS On Air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. We're talking with a young woman, age of 43, which is young in my book, Dr. Rebecca Timlin-Scalera, talking about her battle with cancer, early diagnosis, stage 4, upgraded to uh, stage 3C, and found a uh, foundation, the Cancer Couch Foundation, to try to raise money uh, to encourage greater research uh, to battle those cancers in, in terms of breast cancer that are deemed uncurable. I'm Ron Aaron, along with... Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Timlin Sclera about her journey. And you got to the point where you said, you know, let me find some scientists. My husband and I are going to help make this happen. Uh, How were your husband and your children dealing with these diagnoses? Um, my children, you know, they've, they've each handled it in their own way because they are, even at 7 and 10, you know, in child years, those, that's a huge gap apart in terms of their emotional development. So one of the things that really helped both of them was that I was able to keep my hair through chemo and um, through using these cold caps, which I talk about on thecancercouch.com. Um, they do it as standard in Europe, but many people in this country don't know that that's possible. 
And um, so that was something that took huge dedication. And my husband and my sister, actually, another caregiver, they helped me do that. They came with me to every chemo. And not only did they help me, but I think that was helpful to them. I think everyone in my life, everyone that loves me and that's close to me, giving them a job seemed to be the most helpful thing that they could do. Because everybody wants to help. And I think our tendency is to say, no, 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 I'm fine. But what I learned very quickly was if I could say to somebody, okay, if you can bring me a sandwich on Tuesdays after chemo, and if you can drive my kids to soccer, and if you can do this, people seem to really feel good about that. Give caregivers a specific job. Don't just say, oh, yeah, I could use a meal sometime, or I could, you know, oh, maybe I'll let you know. Be very specific about your request so they know that they're really doing something to help you. And and, and that's yeah, huge. Sorry, sorry. No, that's huge, huge what you just said. Um, because so many people don't do that, and the caregivers are left kind of floundering around trying to figure right. it out. But um, but right. being very specific. In, in fact, um, over the years, um, you know, I think people people with cancer um, that have a sense of you know urgency that maybe somebody doesn't with a, reg- a chronic illness like heart disease or diabetes um, are a little bit better at that. But all the caregivers, you know, and uh, you know, they could learn. Um, to go ahead and, and, and if somebody doesn't give them a specific task, can you bring food sometime? How about if I bring food on Tuesday evenings? You right. know, and make it specific for yourself right. you know, if you're the one helping out. So, you know, I think that that's really important. And right. take just a minute and, and tell us what the cold cap treatment is to prevent hair loss during chemo. So you wear these caps that are frozen at negative 40 degrees, and it is as torturous as it sounds, and you have to wear them for the duration of your chemo infusion and then several hours after. So for me, with the specific chemo that I was on, it was eight hours a day during my chemo treatment, and my husband and my sister helped me do this, and I saved every bit of my hair, and it's down past um, my shoulders. There's pictures of me on the website. You can see it, but for my kids, and that was the main reason I did it, I didn't really look any different to the point where I wrote a funny blog about my son who's seven. At one point, I was a little too tired to get up and help him with something. I asked him to come to me, and he said he couldn't understand why I was tired. I said, well, you know, the cancer meds, and he he looked at me and he said, what, you barely have cancer. What are you talking about, cancer? This is in the middle of my chemo. So, I mean, that's how unaware he was, you know, um, because of how I looked. And, you know, you still lose your eyebrows and your eyelashes and everything else, but not being bald or wearing a wig with little kids makes a huge difference. Um, Is that, is that, I just have to ask with this cap, it sounds like it would be very painful at first. You have to, like, freeze your head into numbness. You do. You have to free. You put uh, like a helmet on your head, right. and um, and it feels freezing for about five minutes, and then you get used to it, and then they change it every like twenty three minutes, and um, so you know it's for me. I had chemo for four months every other week, so it was eight days, and I just thought for eight days I can do it. This is important to me. If it if it doesn't work, fine. You know, I had a wig as a backup, but it did work, and I'm glad I did it because once I was done. I could kind of feel back to normal a little sooner than I would have. This My hair would have taken me probably four years to grow back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just psychologically and everything, it was really important to me because now I have um, something called lymphedema, so I have to wear a sleeve on my arm. And it's interesting to me how now people stop me all the time and my, my disability and my illness are now so public where when I had my hair, you know, having my hair really kept um, a lot of privacy for me. Right. So it, does so. it bother you? that more people now that you have this visible sign that you've been sick? Um, it, sometimes it bothers me. It depends how people react to it. You know, um, 
I mean, most people are just curious, oh, would you do hurt your arm or whatever? And I have no problem saying, no, no, I have cancer, and this is a, you know, one of the impacts of it. Um, so, you know, sometimes it sort of looks like a big tattoo, so sometimes people huh. say, you know, think it's a sleeve of tattoos. But, no, it's, it's okay, but I just, I'm, you know, sometimes when the kids are around, I don't really want that much attention brought to it. Um, try to minimize how much cancer takes over our lives. Um, but otherwise, especially if I'm alone, I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. We'll, we'll talk yeah. a little bit about your husband. So you mentioned, you know, that you helped give some very specific guidelines to some of the people that were wanting to help. How did your husband deal with this emotionally? Um, and, you know, were any of his reactions, did they surprise you? Was he, you know, what happened with him? He felt like, I, he really felt like he had the weight of, and still does, I mean, we're still going through it, like he has the weight of the, the world on him because he's not only trying to be there for me physically and everything else emotionally, but he's got the kids to contend with because I was really in the hospital for a long time. So he's trying to be in two places for one, you know, once. And I'm on medical leave from my practice, so he's also holding down a job and the primary breadwinner. So... I think the main thing for people to think about with caregivers, especially the primary caregiver, is that that person needs support too. And I was getting all kinds of support. You know, I was the center of attention through this, flowers and cards and texts and people dropping by, but no one really thought of him. You know, what can they do for him? Except for a couple people would say, hey, you know, we're going to a baseball game Friday night. Can we take you? And that was like... A few times that happened, it was the best thing for him. And, of course, I said, go, I'll get help. I'm fine here, go, um, because he needed a break from cancer world. He needed to just be a guy and get his mind off things and just um, release a little bit because he's just, you know, and that's, I think, how it goes is the, the person who's not sick does have the weight of the world on their shoulders. They're, they're carrying everything. Now, it's interesting, and, and let me remind folks, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer podcasts of all of our shows are available easy to find just go to caregiversos.org and you will find our podcast i'm ron aaron along with our co-host carol zerniel talking with a young woman who is describing her battle with cancer and how she turned it into an effort to raise money to do additional research to fight those cancers that in for the most part your everyday oncologist is saying well they're going to die anyhow. Let's not worry about a cure. Talking with Rebecca Timken Scalera, uh, she is a neuropsychologist, and with that training, uh, you understood the impact not only of your disease on you, but on those around you. The psychological impact. Uh, did that training help you? I mean, I would love to say it did, and I did a perfect job of supporting my husband through this. But you know, when you're in it, um, I'm sure I didn't because you know neither of us were at our best. But I think we just. Um, I, but I was aware, and, and one of the things we tried to do when I was physically able is just get some time alone, just to talk and kind of be together. We, we happened to have a beach not too far from us, so we would go to the beach. We'd have somebody watch our kids, a neighbor, or whatever, for a little bit. And that was really important because we would just, we, you know, you want to limit how much you're talking about this around your children if you have young kids. Um, not that we hid it from them, but we really tried to keep life as normal as we could. So it was important for us to get some time to check in. How are you doing? What's going on? What's your week like? What do you need from me? And um, and I also try to, I only have him, like I had a PET scan today, for example. He offered to come. I said, no, I'm fine. Go, you know, I really am fine on my own. I think... Um, I think I try to protect him a little bit, too, and, and his time, and know when do I really need him there and when, when am I okay alone, because, you know, he really, um, not only does he have the stress of everything I described with the weight of the world, he's also worried about becoming um, a young widower with two little kids. So then there's that stress. 
you know that he's living with. What does he and, do? Um, uh, what does he do professionally? He's a CFO. He's in finance. So very demanding job, you know, um, and they've been great. And he, you know, he curbed his travel for the past eight months. And uh, so he's really been here for the kids. But, uh, but you know, that's a lot of mm. stress for, for a young guy, for anybody, um, to, be, to be not knowing what they're facing. Well, talk a, young family. talk a little bit about um, the Cancer Couch, what people will find on your website, and sort of the goals of the foundation. And how they can help okay. you. Okay, so one thing that you that you can find if you start from the beginning of the blogs is just a hysterically funny story about how this all happened and going through treatment. So for anyone that's been through it or curious or going through it, I, people say that's very helpful. Then there's resources on there, how to save your hair if you want to, um, organic beauty products you can use, uh, resources for metastatic breast cancer. There's, of course, a donate button to donate to the foundation, and then there's a whole... Um, pull down of exactly what the foundation does, who we fund, the studies we fund, why, what we're all about, and all the events that we have going on throughout the year. Um, now, we've just started, but we already have so much momentum. I think we've brought in over $70,000 in a matter of two months already, and we haven't even had our huge event yet. So people are really getting on board with this, and there's things you can do no matter where you live. We can help you have an event for us. We can support it in any way. So go on and check it check it out, and um, if nothing else, just sign up for the newsletter so you stay, you know, stay involved and and just keep an eye on us, see what we're doing. And, and, and what is your goal uh, with this foundation? What's your fantasy? My fantasy would be to keep up with this long enough that metastatic breast cancer becomes a manageable chronic illness. I'm not going to use the word cure because with cancer, cancer is so complicated and it mutates so much that there may not be a cure like we have for AIDS, you know, like one cure. But I believe in my lifetime, hopefully, that there is the, that we are close enough to the answers here that we can make this a chronic condition. That's my fantasy, that this doesn't, this is no longer a three-year death sentence, so, um, that it's a chronic condition. And the researchers that you're working with, are they in a university? Are they in a you know, a, a clinical setting? Yes, they are. One of them is a Dr. Nikhil Waggle is up at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which people may be familiar with up in Boston. And the other, um, Dr. Chandra Lepati, is at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. So they are, those two hospitals are um, consistently among the top five cancer centers in the world rated. And these two are young guys who do nothing else but study metastatic breast cancer. So, how did you find them? I put the word out online. Actually, social media has been amazing. It's become such an amazingly powerful tool um, for cancer research and for so many other things. But I put the word out among the uh, metastatic communities and said, "Please tell me who's the leading resource. Who is the closest um, that we have to really, you know, making a difference here?" And these were the names I got back consistently over and over. So I have, you know, PhD myself. I understand research. I looked into them. I got in contact, went and had meetings with them. I brought my husband, I brought my medical advisor, and we went through and handpicked what we thought were going to be the most promising uh, research studies that we will see results um, the soonest, and that's what we're funding. Um, we have two at Dana-Farber and one at Sloan, and the more money we get in, the more studies we can fund, and we'll do the same thing. I plan to visit each lab every six months and give my donors a full report in layman's terms on my website so you can understand exactly what you're funding and exactly what's been done every six months. And out of all of this, you mentioned that you've got a little furry friend, Skye. Is that a dog or a cat? 
that's a dog. She's been thankfully quiet during this interview. But <laughs> I think we only heard her once, maybe <laughs> we, we, in the yeah. background. <laughs> Either yes. her or one of your kids. Well, you know, listening to your story, we, you know, we, we, um, where are you now? Um, what does it look like? Uh, we hope that that you know the test that you had and and that you're you're rounding the corner on this. Thank you. I really hope so. Yeah, because I've got a lot of work to do. So we, We'll check back in with you in a, in a few months, and we thank you very much for coming on. I would love that. I appreciate it. Thank Take you care. so much for having me. Okay. Thank you. Give Sky a hug for us. I will. I <laughs> Bye-bye. Will. Bye-bye. Dr. Rebecca Timlin-Scalera, we thank her for coming on. Caregiver SOS on air. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, and moi. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS on air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. At the end of each of our Caregiver SOS programs, we bring you Take 10, which is a marvelous opportunity to hear us bat around a topic that may be of interest to a whole lot of folks. We think it will be. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, a nationally known psychotherapist and expert in caregiving as well as addictions. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, and me, I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, um, you've been having nightmares? You know, Ron, it's funny you should mention that. So, okay, Jamie, the, you can hang your sign out. The, the therapist is in, but this is what's going on. So, um, as you know... Uh, my my father, my sister, and I take care of my mother who has Alzheimer's. And she has been, it's been one of those transitional periods where we have moved her from the home into, we're on our third place that she has lived in a month. So it hasn't gone well. And I found out that throughout this last month, both my sister, my father, and I are having nightmares all night, every night, and um, it, this is just, been, it's all three of us. So I was wondering, you know, what is, why are we having nightmares? You know, what is causing them? You know, what is that, what is it telling us? Well, you know, Carol, nightmares are, are normal, okay? Let me first clear up for you and for caregivers out there. Uh, they're part of a, a lingering sort of bereavement, if you will, or even the, the re-experience of, of events that you've, you just went through, in fact, an Amarillo not long ago. Um, you, your sister, your father, all of you have gone through a fairly traumatic time. And without getting into deep, deep uh, sort of, you know, things that occurred there, because that's not what the show's about, of course. It's about how we can offer help. Um, I can flat out tell you, you all have gone, walked through the fire zone and have come out the other side. So nightmares and, 
and anxiety and panic. It's, it's all pretty normal. So, so the panic is normal. Um, and the nightmares are no, normal. So in my dreams are kind of classic where I'm the house is off its foundation. I'm in the house. It's being swept away in the water. And I'm trying to stop the house before it gets to the ocean. Same dream yeah. every night. No, there's a lot of water. I have a lot of water in my particular dreams. Well, dreams are beautiful sort of ways to get to the, to the unconscious. And, and obviously you're feeling out of control. And, and you have a very, very difficult time, as all of us caregivers do, in, in this issue around control. I mean, this is one of those things, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This is a time when caregivers cannot control as well as in any way, shape, or form. But what they can control is their own mind, their own body, and their own soul as they're going through this sort of war zone that your whole family has. So is there anything that we can do before we go to sleep at night to, you know, tell ourselves that we're doing the best we can and, you know, I don't know, to give ourselves some reassurance? How do we go from, you know, the nightmare zone where they were all seem to be stuck in to back to, I won't say normal because you said nightmares are normal, but to no, the non-scary kind of dreams. Kind of running through meadows with flowers and butterflies. <laughs> there are well, no butterflies. You know, mindfulness obviously is a huge antidote for that. But I, I will also mention to you that um, the sleep hygiene at this particular critical point in time is very, very important. That literally, you know, taking care of, of your sleep patterns before you go to sleep, making sure you turn off televisions at least, you know, 45 minutes before you fall asleep, listening to guided image, uh, meditation or, or imagery, if you will, that's, that comes across as a wonderful, wonderful application called Insight Timer that I would absolutely recommend everybody to and, get for so that's $4.95. An, that's an app on a phone? Pardon me? It's an app on a phone? Yeah, it's a wonderful app on the phone, and it's got so much content, and it's got so many places to go where to help you sleep, or if you're having nightmares, or meditations, if you will, that as you go to sleep with, with the earphone, or, or let's say just, you know, a bud, if you will, in your ears, you're listening, it helps you kind of get into the sleep patterns. But understand right now, sleep hygiene is critical, and because anxiety is occurring, and if anxiety is occurring, obviously, you really have to prepare for it. What is sleep hygiene? Well, sleep hygiene is literally, um, if anybody, and I'm one of those two over the years have had difficult times with sleep or to prepare yourself not to have anxiety as you go to sleep or, as Carol says, that I'm going to have a nightmare or I'm going to have this occur or that occur. Sometimes you really have to prepare ahead of time before you go to sleep. You know, make sure your room is uncluttered. Make sure your television is off. Make sure when you lay down and relax you you have let's say something first to read and then like i mentioned a guided meditation that allow you to go to sleep um acute anxiety under what carol and her whole family has gone through ron is is pretty natural but there are things that we can do certainly around sleep that will lessen it and of course if it continues it continues you definitely want to get an assessment evaluation and talk to either a good sleep specialist who's a neurologist or a good psychiatrist also who can help you with this issue. So in, you know, in my particular dreams, there's a gamut of emotions. So I can, you know, I have the, I'm afraid, 
I have the anxiety. I have the you know the dream where I'm really mad and I'm angry. Um, so are all of those emotions that are in our dreams? Is that you know are those just a reflection of what I'm really feeling inside? I mean, is it like one for one, or is it symbolic of something else? They're symbolic, and I don't you know we don't have a long time to obviously go through dream interpretation. But Carl Jung would say that they are projections of what's going on inside your own psyche. So that these things projecting are, are happening, and they're projecting into your dreams. You know, the anger that you have, it's, it's really not anger at anybody out there. It's probably, you know, anger you're feeling, which is something we do to ourselves. We kind of beat ourselves up in this whole process, like we could do more, like we could, you know, so we get angry at ourselves. Or the sadness that we feel in our dreams for others is really a projection of the sadness we may feel for ourselves. So I really always really uh, recommend that a good Jungian trained therapist, and there are many of them out there uh, who are, I think, specialized in dream interpretations is, is a place to go. And again, if you go to like psychology today and put your zip code in, uh, you probably could come up with people who are actually excellent in terms of dream interpretation. But, but they are a roadmap, Carol, to your own mental health. And that's the beauty of dreams and even nightmares. Are your sisters and father's nightmares similar? Well, we they they are similar in that they are dis, you know similarly disturbed you know i can remember one of mine i was back in class and i was having to learn german but the german you know, which i'm terrible at i took german in college so it wasn't math class it was german class and then they had removed the german words and put symbols for the german words which of course meant absolutely nothing so you know and my father is um, can't get to my mother uh, and I think my sister's pretty angry <laughs> most of her dreams. Wow. So, and, but and it's, it's, are you waking your husband up? Are you, you waking up thrashing? or? I don't think I thrash, but I wake up often, and when I wake up, I go back to sleep, and another nightmare stops. So it's one nightmare starts. at... Yeah, it starts, sorry. It's one nightmare very, after another. You know, Carol, these are very important things to attend to. Um, it's, uh, uh, again, uh, without getting... In fact, Carol, go right to a hospital. He's like, check yourself no, absolutely in. Not. The beauty of this is that, uh, you know, anybody who can assist you in a very therapeutic, safe environment with a background in trauma, don't forget, you went through what I would clearly tell you is like almost a PTSD, a post-traumatic stress response to what you witness with your family, and most caregivers do. Well, she's mentioned about her mom going into the hospital. She's talked about that on the air. Right. But but we don't need to go into detail. Yeah, in in that respect, though, it is a trauma, and it's a trauma for the whole family, and trauma works its way through the system, and it's happening through your dreams or your nightmares. And just so the caregivers who are listening to us know that there's extraordinarily remedied sort of ways to go down this road. You have a therapist down the street who is, is excellent, and that's a safe, safe, safe space to allow these emotions to come out. And if they're skilled in dream interpretation as well, it'll accelerate the healing. Yeah, I, I didn't hear you mention NyQuil or alcohol. No, well, you know, that's called a refuge, and, and obviously it's, uh, I'm not here to get on the sermon and tell people what to use as a refuge, but mindfulness and meditation is also a refuge. And uh, a refuge is some place where you find a safe place from the storm. Right. Um, so if you're going through depression or if you're going through anxiety or going through sleep disturbance issues, uh, obviously it's much more prescribed to, to try the, the homeopathic, holistic approach. Well, so for the caregivers that are listening, I only bring this up simply because it's it was the whole family. You know, this is it's mm-hmm. temporary. And I think all of us wake up every morning acknowledging we know where that's coming from. Um, 
we know it's our way of processing and dealing with it. But for caregivers who are, are disturbed by their dreams when it feels like it's out of control, you know, I agree, Jamie. If it keeps going on forever, I, you know, I'm going to look for something else, and I'm going to take you up on that meditation. But remember, Carol, also, and real quickly, this is not only about the present. They trigger also fear and control issues and things that happen as a child. That's Gotta stop you right there. We're flat why out. Why we time. need to get into therapy? We're going to get her there. In fact, I'll drive her right after the show. <laughs> Dr. Jamie, we'll be back with Take Ten next week, right here on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. 9:30 a.m. The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.